1 now, and uh, would somebody read verses 1 to 9? Continue to remember the idea that God gave life, and therefore to take life is to take something man doesn't have the right to do. So you find this slain man, and he's out in the country. You don't know who did it. You don't know where they were from. So he says, you know, there's a sense in which the land is polluted by the injustice of this massacre. And something needs to be done about it. So what they were to do was to measure and figure out which city was closest to the man who was slain. They go to that city, to the elders of that city. They take a heifer and kill the heifer, uh, break its neck, and and that would be somewhat of an atonement uh, for this uh, unlawful murder. That was the closest they could get to making some sort of an atonement uh, some sort of a compensation for that unlawful murder. And uh, the elders would come and say, we didn't shed the blood and we didn't see it. We don't know who did it. And ask God for forgiveness and to not place guilt on them for this unjust uh, murder. And God would remove the guilt. The, the idea is that the shedding of innocent blood brings guilt on the nation, on the land, on the city, on the people. Perhaps we don't think about that enough. I think that it's easy for us not to feel all that outraged and certainly not all that sense of guilt when innocent blood is shed. But that's the way God looks at that. Might be a good thing to think about in connection with so much innocent blood being shed in our country in abortion and perhaps in other kinds of ways as well. That that really this brings guilt and, and shame upon the land itself. So that was the provision that was given when you found the slain man in the countryside and didn't know who did it or where they were from. Comments and thoughts about that. Okay, that kind of concludes that section dealing with killing. We're just looking at different sections of the law. And the next section of the laws regarding the family, at least that's the way I'm looking at these laws. So chapter 21, 
verses uh, 10 to 14. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and desire her, and would take her for your wife, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off her clothes of her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn her father and her mother a full month. After that you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be... If you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free, but you certainly shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. Okay, so here's a situation where they've captured a woman in battle that they desire to marry. You know, typically in that era, that woman would simply be a slave, and you could treat her any way you wanted to. She was captured in battle, she was your property, do what you like. That was not the case here, however. There were specific rules about what could and could not be done. And the rules were in the interest of this captured woman. He says, first of all, that she's got to have a month to mourn the death of her family. You can't just go into her immediately. She's got to have some time to adjust and to grieve that death. She has to be given full status as a wife. She's not just a play toy for the man, but she's to be fully a wife. If later the man desires to divorce her. She leaves as a free woman. She's not to be sold as a slave or anything like that. She can't be disposed of as as if she were some kind of property. The man must respect her rights as his wife. There were a lot of laws in here that show uh, respect for basic decency and humanity. And many of those would have been very very against the the society in which they were living. (coughs) Thoughts and comments on that? Good question. I'm assuming that we're thinking in this case that she submits to the Lord. Uh, that, that, that would be my best guess. A lot of times women might do that. Maybe more precarious sometimes when a man, when a, when a woman marries a man that, that was from a pagan background, but her, here she, her being captured and so forth. That'd be my best guess. Other questions? Yes, Caleb. Did you have it for you? I don't think so. It doesn't look like it. All right, uh, 15 to 17. The man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved. Both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the firstborn of his children. The right of the firstborn is his. Does the Bible ever describe a truly happy polygamous marriage? In everything you see, shows how difficult this is, and, and you see that that was not God's ultimate will. Uh, here, okay, so you've got the more loved wife and the less loved wife, but it happens that the firstborn is the son of the less loved wife. You can't make the children pay 
for the strain between the parents. He's the firstborn. He deserves the rights of the firstborn. You understand that as the firstborn, he would get a double portion of the inheritance. And so you can't cancel that because, well, you know, he was not the one, not the child of the wife I favor. You know, God is protecting that firstborn son's rights. Comments or thoughts on that? Okay. Uh, 18 to 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So we saw the law to protect the son from an unfair father. Here are laws to to protect uh, parents from unruly sons. You've got a stubborn and rebellious son who won't obey, won't even listen when he's disciplined. Then they're to bring him to the elders of the uh, city and tell the, the elders he's a stubborn and rebellious son who won't obey us. And the men of the city would stone him to death. God intends for the parents to have authority over their children. You can imagine, because we see it, children that are spoiled <laughs> and ungrateful and demanding and simply unwilling to respect the authority of the parents. I suspect you wouldn't have to enforce this law very often for the children to get the understanding that they need to obey their parents. Perhaps this was a law that was rarely enforced. But it certainly shows God's intentions that it not be the children that run the household. It's be the parents that do that. See all sorts of reasons for that, but ultimately that's simply God's design. That's God's order. God expects us to respect the authorities that he has put into place, including the parents in the home. Comments and thoughts about that? Okay, Uh, 22 and 23. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he has put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree. But you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which your Lord, Lord God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is the curse of God. Okay. Now here you see the idea that when someone is, is put to death, you hang him on a tree. Perhaps it's kind of the idea of hanging him up as an example. You know, you see what happens to a man who's uh, committed a capital crime, but. Don't hang him on the tree all night. You have to bury him that same day because he's accursed, and it would be uh, an offense against the land to allow him to hang on that uh, tree overnight. That way you don't defile God's land. Now, of course, that whole passage has a lot of relationship to what we know in the New Testament about Jesus dying on the cross. The idea of Jesus dying on the cross involves the shame and the curse the idea that that someone who would be hung on a tree 
would be considered to be a curse, would be considered to be a criminal. Jesus died a criminal death. He was not a criminal. He had never committed sin. He was dying as a criminal because we are criminals, and he was dying the death that we deserve. And uh, you remember how his body, they actually insisted that it be taken down from the cross so as not to spend the night on the cross and defile the holy day of the Passover. Comments and thoughts about that? Yes? Is that significant to the death of Judas? Well, it certainly was a uh, cursed death to die by hanging. Of course, then he later fell through the rope, I guess, and, and uh, burst headlong, uh, or fell headlong and burst open as well. But yeah, it was a shameful death, and certainly shameful what he did. Other thoughts? Yes, Josh? Was hanging ever used for capital punishment? Uh, normally they would stone and then hang the body. Yes? I see almost like a parallel to, to baptism in a way, but in death to our old self, uh, bearing ourselves when we're baptized. Okay. Um, I almost, almost see that again here. Okay. That is a death and resurrection. Other thoughts? Yeah, Austin. You know, in this section, we just see so much of God in, in His purity, and, and we see that obviously throughout. But you know, He, he wants the land purged of the evil son. Here, this is the person's not to be left on the tree to, to hang and defile the land. We we see that previous times as well. God is so pure in everything, and this land that He's given them, their inheritance, is to be that pure as well. Amen. Yes. Yes, there's a great deal of concern for the land being pure. It's the land of God, the land God has given them, so they need to purge out the evil from the land. Good point. Other thoughts? Yes? Does that verse still apply today to anyone who perhaps it's hanged for a Well, I mean, he's just saying there's that stigma, there's that curse upon them. We might consider it the same way today, but I think it would depend on how we look at it. But, but yes... You would, we would often think of that or an electric chair or something like that as being kind of the symbol of dying a criminal death. Okay? 